Welcome to Have You Seen This, the podcast about obscure, overlooked, and misbegotten cinema. All discussions will be spoiler-heavy. You have been warned. Jennifer Albright, and I'm here with Mike Rosen. Hi! Mike is an author, an artist. Uh, can you tell us about uh, some of your work? Why, yes I can. I am uh, an author, cartoonist, man about town. I've uh, done a couple of graphic novels, uh, Misunderstanding Comics, together with LA comedian Tim Heydrich, and uh, also uh, a comic book adaptation of the Malleus Maleficarum. Uh, the Medieval Guide to Hunting Witches, uh, which is available through Slave Labor Graphics, or SLG, as well as doing the webcomic Guttersnipe. Uh, today on Have You Seen This, we're talking about The Day the Clown Cried, um, an infamous project uh, by the comedian and filmmaker Jerry Lewis that never actually saw the light of day. Um, or I guess you could say it's it's seen the light of day only in fragments. Yeah, uh, I guess it's kind of interesting that we're talking about a movie that we have not seen, uh, nor has anyone really seen. I think only eight people ever have seen this movie, from what I've heard. Mike, can you give us a capsule summary of The Day the Clown Cried? Sure. So, um, I believe in, in Jerry Lewis's own words, this is a movie about a clown uh, who used to be the top clown and is no longer the top clown. Uh, in English, we would call that a clown. And the basic summary is that Jerry Lewis plays a clown who, through a series of wacky misunderstandings, gets sent to a concentration camp. (laughs) And while he's there, um, he basically becomes uh, the darling of the camp's uh, children. You know, all these little Jewish kids in the the camp uh, love his capering. So the, um, the Nazis decide it would be great because the kids make a lot of noise if we use this clown to lead the children Pied Piper-like into the gas chamber so that we can do away with them, uh, which which then the clown um, does and is gassed as well with them. And, um, oh, sorry, spoilers. Should, should I say <laughs> So spoilers, they all die. Um, now, now that's, that, that's a very... Um, a, a very concise summary, I think, of the movie, and I don't know if it... It probably makes it sound a lot worse than it really is. But it is pretty bad. Uh, we've read the script. Yeah, um, let me give a little bit of background on um, what actually is out there and what we've seen. Um, this movie was filmed in 1972. The script is by uh, a writing team, um, Joan O'Brien and Charles Denton. Um, but Jerry Lewis acquired the script and even though he was a little bit iffy about doing it, um, he decided that the story had to be told. Um, long story short, he went to Sweden to shoot, um, and the producer who brought him the project, uh, just basically disappeared, uh, before, uh, shooting commenced. And uh, I think absconded with the promised production money. So uh, Lewis had to fund a lot of this out of his own pocket, which this was 
after his crest of popularity, uh, you know, he was half of Martin and Lewis. He made some successful films in the early 60s. So um, for him to be spending his own money on this project was actually a pretty significant risk for him. What ended up happening is that uh, I believe that production was completed, but nothing of the film exists beyond a rough cut. Right. Um, and I also believe that, so the film was never, uh, and there are also, I think, various stories about exactly what happened, um, whether it's not been released because Jerry Lewis himself thought better of it and has tried to quash it, or if it's because of, you know, um, the, the uh, uh, Denton and O'Brien owning the rights or various other stories. Uh, yes. But, but for whatever reason, it's, it's never been released, and uh, a, a few people have seen a rough cut of the movie but most but i think at this point it's probably the most infamous uh lost film ever yeah it's interesting because a lot of um a lot of projects that kind of misbegotten projects eventually find their way to the light of day and uh this one kind of hasn't um and the the famous quote about it uh comes from actor Harry Shearer, who apparently saw a videotape that Lewis had of the rough cut in his office, and he compared it to a black velvet painting of Auschwitz. Um, <laughs> I believe were his words. Um, I think, uh, basically implying that it was somewhat misbegotten. Now, the exciting thing is that uh, for a long time, obviously, uh, you know, this film apparently only existed in uh, large format videotape uh, in a Louis Vuitton briefcase in Jerry Lewis's office. <laughs> so nobody saw it besides Harry Shearer. Um, there was a journalist called Lynn Hirschberg who interviewed him for Rolling Stone. Um, she saw scenes from it. I believe the Joan O'Brien who wrote the original screenplay has seen it and then like a few other people. Essentially, no one has seen this beyond like a handful of people. But um, in 2013, um, a... Flemish documentary from the time, roughly 1972, uh, showed up online, um, I think through Flemish public television, um, mm -hmm. and it was a look behind the scenes of the shooting of Day the Clown Cried, um, and there was just a tantalizing hint of what he had shot. I th it was mostly scenes of um, the clown before the fall, you know, it was him in, like, the, in the ring, like, you know, doing clown stuff, yeah. and then there was a lot of... Um, Jerry Lewis talking about the production, you know, his approach to filmmaking, blah, blah, blah. So it was like, holy shit, Day the Clown Cried footage online. But it gets even better because this year um, I saw a story on AV Club saying 30 minutes of footage from the Day the Clown Cried has showed up online. And so I immediately shit my pants with excitement um, and went to look at the YouTube video. And uh, what it was is it was cobbled together from the Flemish documentary and what I later found out was a German documentary released earlier this year, 2016, about the making of the film. And as I started digging, I was like, wait a minute, why wasn't this German documentary a bigger deal? Because not only is there all this footage from the film, um, the director, Eric Friedler, also interviewed Jerry Lewis himself about the production. Which is huge, because Jerry Lewis, like, borderline refused to talk about it every time people asked him about the film. Yeah, which is, I, I think what's actually kind of interesting about this whole thing that just happened, because you mentioned we found out about it through the AV Club. Uh, the AV Club basically said, yeah, footage of David Clown Cry is online, 
um, BBC has this thing that they did about it. Yes. Uh, which is like a, a like I guess a twenty minute kind of like retrospective about the day on Final Cry. I, I forget who's in it. Yeah, it's a um, it's a short documentary. It was made by uh by the BBC. Uh, the BBC documentary is called The Story of the Day the Clown Cried. You can actually see it on YouTube. It's hosted by a British comedian called David Schneider. And it's kind of interesting because, um, you know, he talks about the film from his perspective as uh, a Jewish comedian and, you know, um, kind of the significance of, you know, this this film, you know, uh, right. to Jewish people. Because, you know, obviously it's kind of delving into very dark territory. Um, I recommend it. You know, you can find it online. Um, what they found was uh, they dug up a bunch of production stills, which provided, you know, kind of an even bigger look at the production, which, you know, again, like a very big deal. But it's not actual footage from the film. What Eric Friedler, the German documentarian, dug up was actual footage from the actual right. film, The Day the Clown Cried. And, you know, when I went to look at it, I was like, why isn't everybody freaking out about this? Because I'm freaking out. This is amazing. Yeah. This is one of the most infamous lost films of all time. And um, the person who cobbled this footage together on YouTube, um, you know, they basically pulled uh, all the footage from the documentary and, you know, kind of put it together in, you know, in linear fashion. So you can basically yeah. see the skeleton of the story. Well, I think uh, what was interesting about this is it was, like you said, um, you would think, given the history of the film, people would be making a bigger deal about it. But it's it's kind of, there's almost like a bizarre history to this most recent thing as well. Um, because what it appears to me, and I'm not, I'm not in the know. This is just my, this is just me, like, my, my, my theory on what's going on. The BBC saw that this German documentary came out. Um, now, the, the German documentary actually spoke with Jerry Lewis. So this is the first time in decades that he's talked about this movie. Um, and the BBC was like, holy shit, this is a big deal. We want to get this scoop. So they apparently approached Jerry Lewis. He refused to speak with them. They actually say in their documentary, Jerry Lewis wouldn't speak with us. So I think, so the BBC, I think they a little myth. Because in their documentary, they do not say anything really about the German one. They mention it in passing, but they don't really say much about it, and they never mention that Lewis is actually interviewed in the German one. Then the AV Club kind of picked up the BBC documentary, missed you know whatever passing mention there was in the German one, and kind of ran with it. But you know you keep getting more layers, and more information keeps getting left out. So yes. it took us a little bit of digging before we actually found out that there was a German documentary at all that just came out, like literally this year, and actually included interviews with Jerry Lewis. Yeah, because um, for me the confusion sprung from the fact that because I was familiar with that BBC documentary because I'd, I'd watched it as soon as I'd heard about it online. But what the the AV Club article did was they conflated the two. They conflated the German one with the BBC one. And um, as I was watching, and I think you had the same reaction I did when we were watching, you know, when you watch the footage is that, um, you know, obviously there's a lot which is, you know, straight up, you know, straight from the production. And then you see stuff which is, and at first I was like, oh, like, I didn't realize that Lewis took this arty approach, you know, <laughs> with like minimal sets and lighting. And you're like, wait a minute, all these actors are like 90 years old. And then I was like, wait a minute, these are recreated. Um, yeah, he obviously yeah. took the screenplay, and what I guess what what Friedler did was he um, invited back some of the original actors 
and had them recreate their scenes like you know some of the some of the guys who played the you know nazis in the film yeah yeah because yeah the same thing i when i first saw it i was also confused i thought it was some sort of like you know they were trying to go for some sort of german impressionistic style in these scenes for some reason and i was like okay i guess so it wasn't until later i was oh yeah they that's from the documentary they recreated these lost scenes apparently um yes which um which begs the question um where are those missing scenes and this is this is what this is what led me to actually call the library of congress (laughs) this was um there were a couple of dual frustrations with the the preparation for this episode because I I contacted the Library of Congress because um, Jerry Lewis recently donated I guess the bulk of his film holdings to the library, um, and there's a listing for the day the clown cried the French title of the film um, in the, the library. day the clown the clown the clown what is the French name for that movie. Le Clune, I don't know. I never took French. I took Spanish, not French. Um, And you speak German, right? Right. That'll come into play later in this episode. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But um, so there's a listing in the Library of Congress holdings, which you can search online, uh, the French title, Day the Clown Cried. But um, I don't think there's much information about what is actually there. There's just like a listing. Now, what I did was, because I'm I'm tremendously curious, I called the Library of Congress, their moving image center, and spoke to someone who works in that department. They said, oh, well, we don't have a print of the film. What we have are, you know, basically video odds and ends. But what I can do is I can, you know, I can give you the number of the curator of the moving image department, and he actually worked with Jerry Lewis with the, on, on these materials. So I was like, oh, man, that's great. Yeah, put me in touch with the guy. So the guy never called me back. I emailed him. I called him. I called him again. Um... You know, he doesn't want to talk to some rando with a podcast <laughs> with three listeners. So I can't. So much for the power of the press. Exactly. So I, I cannot confirm for you, the listener, what is actually in the Library of Congress. If I find out, you guys will be the first to know because I'm dying to know as well. Now, my theory about what the Library of Congress actually has, if they don't have that large format videotape, which sat in uh, the Louis Vuitton briefcase in Jerry Lewis's offices for all those years. Um, the comment that what they have were basically just kind of odds and ends um, led me to think um, Jerry Lewis was an early pioneer of the video village or um, I guess video monitors on set. Um, He pioneered a system where he was able to review his performances immediately um, instead of having to wait for rushes, you know, and they'd have to like develop the film and everybody would watch them, you know, watch the day's work. Um, so what I'm thinking is that they probably got a bunch of odds and ends from, you know, the video. And yeah. that's that's what they have. They don't and they certainly don't have a print because, like, I don't know how. <sighs> yeah, this this kind of goes into details of uh, film production of the day, which I'm not mm-hmm. as up on as I should be. But, you know, like a, there there was there might have been a work print, but I don't you know, I don't there's no music, no nothing, you know. So they don't have anything in 35. I believe they have like a lot of video odds and ends. And if anybody works at the Library of Congress and wants to confirm this, like hit me up, please. <laughs> I am dying to know. Tell me what the Library of Congress has in uh, from the Jerry Lewis collection. Yeah. Now, what I found out was the provenance of the footage that was in the German documentary 
was, and uh, I will read this to you guys. Um, the German-Australian documentary filmmaker, that's Eric Friedler, managed to secure raw footage from Hans Crispin, a Swede who worked in the 1980s for the Swedish company that produced Mr. Lewis's film. He salvaged nine reels tossed out by his employer during a storage cleaning. So, again, these seem like seconds, odds and ends, you know, nothing that was actually cut into a complete film. Now... I'm assuming that if I was actually able to see this fucking documentary, I could tell you guys a little more about it. But this was my other failure. I tried to get in touch with the, with the filmmaker himself. He never responded. Um, I checked my sources. I could not get a copy of this film. It was broadcast on German public television. <sighs> but again, if I see it, if someone can get me a copy, you guys will be the first to hear about it. Well, I, I think we can rest secure in the fact we've done a, we've done our due diligence in journalistic digging. Yeah, because um, a lot of the um, a lot of the online sources like were kind of fast and loose with their facts, you know. Yeah, they like, just pretty much quote each other in a loop. Yeah, and and even the even the BBC documentary just kind of said glibly, "Oh yeah, the Library of Congress has a print. Um, it won't yeah. be seen until 2025." Now this is, I believe, this is true. I believe that Jerry Lewis stipulated that those holdings would not be able to be seen for another 10 years after he donated them. Yeah. But as for it actually being like the complete, the Holy grail, the complete day the clown cried, like that's something that I've not been able to confirm and I'm somewhat skeptical of. So yeah. it might be that the best look that we get at this for the next decade is this German documentary, which incidentally is called Der Clown. Also kind of interesting because in doing research for this, we actually had we tried to um, read some German film magazines to get a little bit of an insight into what's really going on. Yeah, and I have um, to thank you for your help on that because uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Mike, Mike actually has some German knowledge, has lived in Germany, so he was uh, very helpful in translating. So yeah, my, my, using my, my limited and rusty German, <laughs> we, we went through a few magazines, read a few like you know um, interviews with the director and a few reviews and stuff, and you know that that mentioned the how they got things like from the Swedish film archive and some other things from uh, the Swedes. Um, one of the interesting things that kind of came out, at least in some of the reviews was it wasn't very clear whether Jerry Lewis knew that the uh, documentary had the footage from the movie when he agreed to speak with them, which is also kind of interesting. And again, my plan to why he didn't want to talk to the BBC later on if he felt he got burned. Um, that is so, yeah, a that, really good point. Yeah, so that, <laughs> that's kind of interesting as well. Um, now, the whole thing with Jerry Lewis speaking with the German film crew to begin with, because um, we saw a, a little footage of him speaking, at least in one of them, um, it's difficult to make out because they basically dub him over in German. Yeah, and... he's speaking English, and I'm like, you're dying to hear what he has to say, and then the German uh, narration comes in, you're like, oh, why couldn't you guys have done subtitles, for Christ's sake? Well, one thing that I did get when he was saying, like, he was, he's saying, like, oh, yeah, people ask, why, why am I speaking, you know, now to a German film crew, and why, why the hell not? And, which is a glib response, but I think kind of uh, glosses over that it's actually, it is very significant, I think, that he only spoke to German film crew. And I think it's because, you know, Jerry Lewis, I mean, we, we give him, we make fun of him a lot for this project because it's so misbegotten. And I think when we actually talk about the film, Later on, we'll, we'll discuss that more in depth. 
very clear. I think felt like he was he was making a big statement. You know, the Holocaust is you know this this huge thing in 20th century history. It's it's this huge thing in in Jewish history. You know, and Jerry Lewis himself, I believe, is, is Jewish as well. Yeah, um, he's uh he's he's uh, very open about being proudly Jewish, and I think okay. that's why the um the project was so significant to him. And I think that's why, you know, while he had his doubts, I think he was like, no, like I have to tell the story. It's really yeah, significant. Exactly. I mean, I think it was you know, an earnest attempt to make sense of, of this enormous, you know, uh, tragedy. And I think, you know, halfway through, you know, he realized, you know, maybe he wasn't cut out to do this. Maybe something, something was wrong. It just, it wasn't working. And it was going to be this huge embarrassment. And, um, Germany, of course, um, is so Germany also has a history with the Holocaust. Uh, you know, just, say, just to, not to put a you know to find a point on it. Um, for and, you, uh, you know, for you children out there who are big fans of, have you seen this? Um, the, it turns out that Germany was kind of a significant location in the Holocaust. <laughs> I know, like, you know, there are a lot of kids like, what? Um, but yeah, so, I mean, even to, I mean, to, that's the thing. To this day, I mean, I know a lot of Germans from living there, and there's still a huge sense of collective guilt for what happened. And probably Jerry Lewis, he's approached by a German film crew, and he probably thought, like, these guys will kind of get what I was trying to do. They're going to give me a fair shake. They're not just going to make fun of me like everyone else has. So that's, I feel like that's probably why Jerry Lewis felt that these are the people who would give him the uh, a forum to actually express what he was trying to do and not just like oh, Jerry Lewis what an idiot you know <laughs> yeah that's um, actually that is actually a really good point I hadn't thought of that but that yeah. might have a lot to do with why he was like German TV sure fuck it yeah I mean I think it's I think it's there's a little more thought into that than Jerry Lewis uh, would admit but or maybe he's even conscious of it, I don't know but I really couldn't get over it when I found out that they had actually interviewed him at length for this documentary like for me like um you know after the footage itself which was you know really pretty incredible to see because you know this movie is so notorious like yeah. now i'm like i would kill to like hear that interview i don't know uh how easy it is for a german public television documentary to come to american shores but you know like could this come to netflix or something because like it's it, this shit is interesting yeah you know yeah this is um, a very big deal <laughs> I actually, yeah, I'm surprised at how little coverage this has received so far, but, you know, I think a lot of it is just kind of, um, you know. Yeah, because, I mean, um, I realize that, you know, Jerry Lewis has very little um, significance to the culture now, like his his moment kind of crested a long time ago. Yeah. Um, you know, most people, I'm sure most people don't even like, aren't even cognizant of the telethon that the muscular yeah. dystrophy telethon that he hosted for many, many years and which kind of like was the source of his later fame, yeah. you know? Um, but, you know, he still is very culturally significant to like 20th century comedy, you know, like right. him or not, or whether or not you're French and, you know, think he's brilliant. Um, you know, he's a pretty significant figure. So, and, you know, the thing is like, I'm, I'm like hardly a fan. I've seen maybe like Nutty Professor and that's it. But like, you know, reviewing some of his work, for this episode, you know, it kind of strikes me that, um, you know, you, you look at his old comedy films, like in particular, like his, um, you know, the stuff that he made after Martin and Lewis broke up, um, you know, his films from the early sixties, like the Aaron boy and stuff like that. Um, 
you're watching it, you're like, you know, it kind of like, you'll be like, oh God, this like, this old shit, you know, because it's like, it's just like a nearly 60 year old movie and you're kind of groaning at the humor a little bit. But then he does these really brilliant, like visual gags, which are like incredibly choreographed and like thought out and shot and and it's not really a type of comedy that's done anymore like maybe the closest um that we come to it these days is the work of edgar wright who did you know who did hot fuzz and um Shaun of the dead mm. um you know he puts a lot of thought into his visual gags but um a lot of comedy today is like, oh, we'll get like Will Ferrell and a bunch of guys together and we'll riff and then we'll kind of bang the movie together out of that. Not saying that that isn't a valid approach, but it's like a different type of comedy. Mm. You know, it kind of comes from like, uh, you know, improv and dare I say it, like, you know, the kind of cronyism that leads to like comedy films getting made. You know, you get a bunch of actors who know each other like, hey, we'll riff. It's cool. You know, like, and then we, you know, we make movie in the editing room. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, movies aren't really comedies aren't really like plot heavy anymore or like um you know they certainly don't have that level of like visual gag uh plotting that they that they did back in the day that jerry yeah. lewis was doing so credit to the guy um and it kind of it kind of made me laugh because uh in the there's a there's a um kind of important spy magazine article which was i think kind of like the first look at day the clown cried like 20 years later where you know they interviewed harry shearer and some other people who actually saw the the film um they take a shot at him in like the very first couple of paragraphs um where they say i'll just read it to you guys to artists and intellectuals the 20th century has posed no questions more vexing than these first can art make sense of the holocaust and second why do the french love jerry lewis the first question can't really be answered, at least not in the space allotted here. As for the second, it's my own opinion that the French have confused sloppy, uneven filmmaking with Godardian anti-formalism. Oh, 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 that, oh. Is, that is truly a sick burn, my friend. <laughs> and I think, you know, as I was saying, like, I think it's, I think it's slightly unfair because, yes, like, uh, you know, if you look at, uh, like, Jerry Lewis's later work, like, yeah, like, sloppy definitely applies. Um, but again, like those early films of his, you know, where he was kind of like stretching his legs as like a director and a writer and a performer and, you know, pioneering like the, the video village with like close, you know, close circuit television, like he was doing good work, you know, yeah. and you, know, um, you can laugh at the French, but you know, they, they, they recognize that. And I don't necessarily think they're wrong. And I'm saying that as someone who isn't even like a fucking Jerry Lewis fan. My my entire experience with Jerry Lewis, beyond you know this the the beyond the research we've done for this episode, is uh, Doctor Frank on The Simpsons, whom I believe is based on Jerry Lewis, to the best of my knowledge. Well, and let's not forget um, the the parody of him they they had in Animaniacs. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Freud Laven, Freud Laven, Freud Laven. When you think about it, Doctor Frick is really a second generation parody because he's really a parody of that parody of Jerry Lewis. That's true, huh? Because like the it, um, yeah. and what cracks me up about the Animaniacs parody is that it is so pointed. It's like it's kind of it's it's hilarious because it's really kind of harsh. Like it seems like people like it was written by people who like kind of knew him or were familiar with him like as a um. You know, they weren't just familiar with him as a filmmaker. They were familiar with him as a person. Yeah, so I guess yeah, that's true because that's my, you know, real impression of Jerry Lewis as well. Um, I guess, you know, 
we're getting up there in age as far as the internet's concerned. And Jerry Lewis was even before our time, really. I mean, his, you know, by the time we came on stage, he's pretty much known as a caricature of, of himself, I guess. Um, and, and vaguely, I remember some of Jerry's kids, like, you know, appearing on like 2020 and saying the telethon was rigged and offensive or something. I I don't know the, yeah, actually, that's a whole uh, thing in itself. Well, at this point, let me, I'm going to really quickly plug a documentary called the, the kids are all right. Um, which you can see it. The kids are all right.org. That's all with two L's. Um, it was a short documentary made, um, about a former Jerry's kid who is uh, also a disability activist. Um, and there's some amusing, Amusing footage of, of him and his friends going to uh, protest the telethon when it was still running. Um, and I don't think, like, you know, I have to say that, you know, you can you can be like, well, you know, look at all the money and awareness they raised, you know. But, like, you know, the telethon was also kind of this vehicle for Jerry Lewis's ego. And also the fact that, you know, it's kind of like the problem that people have with Autism Speaks these days where it's like, well, you know, you actually don't have anybody disabled on your board of directors, and you don't seem particularly interested in disabled people except as, like, vehicles for raising money and, like, objects of pity. Yeah. So, but again, like, as Mike said, that's, like, a whole nother issue. Like, go go check out thekidsareallright.org because, like, you know, the documentary is actually kind of eye-opening. And it's, yeah. a, it's an important perspective, which is all too often ignored in our society. But, um, Mike, I believe you were making a point. Oh, um... What was I saying? <laughs> um, uh, I forgot. Should we talk about the movie? Actually, even yeah. Though oh, actually, like I kind of want. I kind of want to throw in um, this. Uh, there was a quote. This is kind of why, um, like you know, Jer- this is one of the many reasons that Jerry Lewis has kind of gotten this rep as like a complete asshole. <laughs> is this about like uh, the thing he said about telephone kids? They didn't want something about cripples and gimps or something, I believe. Well, yeah, like, number one, um, he keeps uh, he keeps referring to people with muscular dystrophy as cripples. Yeah, that's... <laughs> <laughs> Which, um, you know, and... Uh, oh, Jerry Lewis, he was from another time. Back in his day, that was, that was acceptable. I guess. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and, 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 and change is hard, so... In 1990, um, he wrote, <laughs> I think this was in Parade Magazine, you know, which is like the newspaper insert. And uh, it says, uh, Jerry Lewis wrote his own first person account of what it is like to be a person with muscular dystrophy. Um, number one, like, why wouldn't you get a person who actually has muscular dystrophy to write the article? Well, well, come on. See what they could, they, they can talk? What? <laughs> But yeah, like, uh, and here's a quote from the article. I know the courage it takes to get on the court with other cripples and play wheelchair basketball. I'd like to play basketball like normal, healthy, vital, energetic people. I can't just half do anything. Either it's all the way or forget it. When I sit back and think a little more rationally, I realize my life is half, so I must learn to do things halfway. I just have to learn to try and be good at being half a person. I may be a full human being in my heart and soul, yet I am still half a person. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Like, that's a pretty titanic example of, like, not getting it. Jerry Lewis is like, it's okay that you're, o- it's okay that you're only worth half as much <laughs> as a real person. Yeah. I like, guess. Um, and, you know, he, I don't think he understood why people got mad at that. Yeah. 
And uh, he still, he did the telethon for many years after that. And, you know, so. Now, um, the last thing that I want to touch on, and this um, this goes back to the Jerry Lewis telethon. Um, and I read this in the, the Spy Magazine article where they, they talked to Harry Shearer about, um, you know, his experience viewing the film. Um, there was this paragraph. Uh, this is a quote from Harry Shearer. Uh, where they and they they had asked him they had asked him is there really anything within Jerry's body of work that even compares to Day the Clown Cried and this is his response the only thing in Jerry's oeuvre that really is like it is a wonderful thing that he did early on in the telethon it was a dramatic tape of an LA actor who hosted the Popeye show and Jerry shot it the guy plays muscular dystrophy it's a stage reading I am muscular dystrophy, and I hate people, especially children. I love to make their limbs shrivel up. They showed this for several years before cooler heads prevailed. In its sense of misplaced dramaturgy, it was the closest I ever came to seeing anything that would be a real precursor to the clown movie. Mm. Okay, now I'm pretty sure that uh, the actor in this is Tom Haddon, who indeed mm -hmm. hosted the Popeye show on, um, I think, uh, Channel 5, KTLA. Um, and also hosted um, showings of children's movies in the 80s. This was how I became a big fan of the Swedish Pippi Longstocking movies. Mm -hmm. um, he, he hosted these showings on TV. Now, if anybody happened to record the telethon, I guess this would have been in... I, I don't know when this would have been, if it would have been in the 70s or the 80s. If anybody has this footage of Tom Haddon pretending to be muscular dystrophy, for the love of God... <gasps> Rip that and send me a clip. I would, I would kill to see this. It sounds amazing. Was he was so, was he, was he actually playing Popeye on the Popeye show, or is he just <clears throat> hosting it? I think um, I never saw him like hosting the Popeye show. I think he kind of like he would dress up. I just remember him doing the the Pippi Longstocking movies, okay. and he would just kind of like intro them. And because I really like the idea that he was Popeye, <laughs> like muscular, muscular dystrophy Popeye. <laughs> I muscular dystrophy. Yeah, 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 get those chills. Get your shirt Get me spinach. Get me I don't know. I mean, it's it'd be kind of ironic, actually, because actually. Oh my God! They depowered Popeye. How could they yeah. do that? Maybe is that why his his arms are so weirdly shaped? Is it because of muscular dystrophy? <laughs> Because when you think about it, his muscles make no sense. You don't get muscles <laughs> on your forearms like that. I always just assumed that's what it was supposed to be, but it's just really kind of weird when you think about it. Yeah, it's weird that Popeye has no biceps. Yeah. Popeye, I'm just saying, like, I can't believe that Max Fleischer would design a care of a weird 1920s inkblot character so so uh, grotesquely. Um, yeah, where where were his anatomy texts? It's really... Yeah, it's really God. Nice. No, like, Someone should um, headline that shit. You know, now that you've, you've like... Uh, Raise the specter of Tom Haddon as Popeye as muscular dystrophy. There's no way that this footage can even live up to that. So he's probably doing. He, I, 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 he's got to be wearing like a top hat and a, have a like a handlebar mustache though, or something. Because as he's as he's tying a damsel to railroad tracks. Yeah. So <laughs> speaking of people who don't understand the intrinsic value of human worth, uh, I guess we'll talk about uh, the movie The Day the Clown Cried. Uh, <laughs> How's that for transition? Um, <laughs> Works for me. So, so we have not seen the movie, but we read the script, and presumably this is the um, actual shooting script. Um, yeah, and so, um, the reason that we know this is because it has Jerry Lewis's fingerprints all over it. 
<laughs> yeah, you can see he's uh, he's doctoring the script to punch it up a little bit, you know? Yeah, and I mean, I understand that, um, you know, as a, not just as a director, but as the performer who would be appearing in it, you know, you kind of want to play to your own strengths. But I think one of the problems with the movie is that it is somewhat uneven in tone. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to describe it. Um, and um, I have to point out that, you know, if you go and watch the footage that was unearthed, for the, doc- actually the looks German pretty good, honestly. Yeah, like you watch and you're like, hey, what's the big deal? You know, this actually, you know, it doesn't look like the greatest thing ever made, but, you know, like some of these scenes are like, you know, the scenes of him interacting with the children in the boxcar. Yeah, they're like. kind of poignant, honestly. I mean, yeah. as poignant as it can be when there's no sound and you're not really sure what's going on. But, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't, well, because the thing is, all we really know is Harry Shearer describing this as, as a horrendous train wreck. And when you watch the footage, you're kind of like, this looks like it might actually have some merit. It looks like it might not be as tone deaf <laughs> as we would think. Um, when you read the script, though, uh, it's kind of tone deaf. A, a, a little bit. Um, because it's got, uh, it, it really kind of shifts unevenly between, like, wacky slapstick comedy and just, like, um, tear-jerking maudlin sentimentality. Yeah, and, um, okay, like, number one... Um, <laughs> when Jerry Lewis came on to this project, the script is written. The main character was named Carl Schmidt. Um, and a good name, good name. You know, it's just like okay, regular German name. When uh, Jerry Lewis came on the project, for God knows what reason, he changed the main character's name to Helmut Dork. It's funny. Yeah, that's comedy. I love all the parts in the script where he parenthetically assures the reader that the scene that they are reading will indeed be funny in yeah. execution. Because <laughs> well, there are several parentheticals to that effect. And it's like, if you have to reassure people, like, maybe that should be a hint that it's maybe not coming across. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are things like, it's weird because it's, it's kind of, um, for the most part, it's a relatively straightforward kind of realistic world that he's building. And then he'll throw in these random kind of airplane-style sight gags. <laughs> Um, like, like yeah. there's one scene where there he's in the concentration camp and, um, he's, so, it's so cold that he goes off screen to piss and they, they insert the sound of like ice cubes falling or something. He's pissing like, ice. It's yeah. funny. And, and, and then he like, he picks up his socks and they're all stiff because they're frozen and his shoelaces are stiff. And, uh, and, and Jerry Lewis inserts a parenthetical explaining, like, how the costume department is going to do these stiff shoelaces and how it's really going to be great. But he's really impressed with the sort of things that they can do, uh, which is just kind of out there. And I don't know what's up with that. But, um, yeah, so there's lots of stuff like that. That entire scene is bizarre because um, the whole movie is like – so basically, Helmut Dork um, – he, he's a clown in a circus. He fucks up a big clown act, which actually, honestly, this whole thing makes no sense to me, okay? I gotta say, like, I'm not a circus man. I'm not a carny or anything. I don't know the inner workings of the circus life, but, like, basically there's a scene where, like, Helmut Dork is presented as he's, like, he used to be a great clown. Now he's down and out. He no longer gets respect of the clowning profession that he craves. And so he has been demoted from the king clown to the, the shitty like clown who has to carry the king clown's coattails. Yes. And there's a scene that happens at the beginning where basically the king clown comes out. He's got this giant like – this tuxedo with these coattails that are like 50 feet long. 
and Jerry Lewis's clown is kind of carrying them. And then at the end, he like not paying attention and he trips and knock and falls down. And that makes the King clown fall down. And the audience roars laughter because they think it's part of the act, but it's not. And the King clown is pissed off. He is so furious that he's been made to be mocked and laughed at by the audience that he demands that helmet dork be fired. And, and there are a couple things about this that are very weird to me because first of all, it's like, well, obvious. What, what was actually the act supposed to be? Cause my understanding when you're doing a clown act, you've got your like your pompous clown and your kind of tramp clown, you know, the 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 little guy clown. Yeah, um Jerry the, Lewis from the the footage Jerry Lewis's character is a kind of a sad clown. Right, exactly. He's the one that like he kind of usually when I've seen clown acts, which I haven't seen a lot, you know. Um What are you saying? Clowns the, are more popular than ever these days. <laughs> Kid, kids just love them clowns. Yeah, like in, um, in Eli Roth horror films, maybe, but like not so much <laughs> as um, like clown acts. But pray continue. You know, um. So yeah. So he does this thing where like yeah. Well, it just seems like usually when you see clown acts, like that clown who's kind of the sad clown or the the little tramp clown or whatever you call it. I don't know the clown terminology. Um. He's the one who his job is to basically kind of make the the pompous clown be his straight man almost and kind of like bring him down and so basically by fucking up that's kind of what the uh, usual clown act would be and so it's weird that like that is what they don't like that and that gets them fired plus it's like usually that's the the tramp clown the sad clown is kind of the star of the show so he's been demoted why is he demoted to that position? That's that's really an upgrade. That, that's a promotion. I would. I yeah, don't know. You think that you'd think that he'd be some sort of adjutant clown or something like that. Not not the Emmett Kelly figure, you know. <laughs> I'm I'm having a hard time suspending my disbelief about the clown <laughs> the clowning in this movie. Yeah, like I understand that maybe okay, like um, Helmut got uh the laugh that uh Gustav or whatever the main clown name right is. like he yeah. got, he got the laugh that gustav like thought rightfully should have been his right okay but, but it like the way you describe it like you know it kind of it's like it kind of doesn't make sense yeah like i i just don't know what the actual act would have been so that gustav would have gotten the laugh is, i'm is... sure there would have been some really amazing business with those 50 foot long coattails yeah yeah what else was supposed to happen um plus you know i mean on okay also not to not to I mean, I think part of the problem with this movie is that clowning as a profession has has fallen so far into dis- disrepute since the day. Like, okay, this movie's made in 1972. Even by 1972, most kids would not be impressed by a clown. I think they'd be like, <laughs> whatever, okay, fucking clown, whatever. But, like, in 1972, older people, you know, would have remembered the, the circus from their youth in, like, the 1920s. And like, oh, yes, I remember going to the circus and seeing the you know, the, the merry clowns and stuff. So they might have some good memories of clowns. Well, um, Mike, you're a big, you're a big horror buff. So right. do you, would you be able to pinpoint when the terror clown kind of became a trope? Because I know a lot of us think immediately think of, um, Tim Curry and, uh, Stephen King's it. Yeah. That would be what, like kind of mid eighties, I think. I think, that? yeah. Like, um, uh, early to mid eighties. But, but can, yeah. you th- can you think of other like terrifying clowns before that? Um, I think, I mean, Pennywise is really the big one, uh, but I know that, like, you know, before that, you have John Wayne Gacy. Um, oh, yeah. Big, um, and oh, believe- man, like, you know, I loved his movies. It was a shame that he killed all those people, though. 
<laughs> there's also um I I believe there's some incidents of like scary like phantom clowns dating back you know mm-hmm. even before that um do I, I don't that, uh, do you think that's when the cultural tide turned was it with, was it with John Wayne Gacy and then was it just kind of irrevocably set on that path by Pennywise I I don't know that like I don't feel like John Wayne Gacy um was necessarily like the, the tipping point I you know obviously he's part of that because I think. I think probably Pennywise and Stephen King were probably influenced by that. Um, but I think that probably, you know, the culture back then, the, well, there wasn't same, there was not the same media culture back then mm-hmm. that would let John Wayne Gacy, like, become imprinted on every child's psyche. Yeah. There was, uh, you know, even a few years later when It came out. So I would say It's probably more responsible for that. But either way, like all that stuff, um, that's part of the reason I think now you look at this and it's like a clown. Yeah, Uh, like it really like clowns really have just plain become a figure of terror. Yeah. At this point. Everything about a clown is terrible because, you know, a circus, it's actually not so bad because you're in an audience. You're like you're in a faceless audience. You don't Mm -hmm. get the personal attention. You meet a clown in real life. It's terrible. They are just like they will not leave you alone until you give them that laugh. So actually, when you think about it, I guess it's very, very appropriate that Jerry Lewis, who is so desperate for attention and uh, recognition, would play a clown. Um, no, but- and that's um, that kind of dovetails nicely into one of the problems that I have with this movie, is that the character of Helmut Dork is such a, a self-pitying garbage bag. Yeah. You and- never really warm up to him throughout most of the movie like because he spends like the whole like first two-thirds of the film bellyaching to anyone who will listen about how his great talent has been wasted and no one will just let him be the great clown that he was meant to be you know and then um you know because he's so self-absorbed he gets himself thrown into like a prison camp because he you know he dissed the Fuhrer yeah you know um and then when he's at the camp, he won't shut up about what a great clown he was, but he won't actually clown for the people in in the barracks because maybe deep down he knows like what a garbage bag he really is. It's it's hard to articulate, but this is one of the things that really sticks in my craw about the film and kind of makes me look askance at Jerry Lewis a little bit is that um for for Helmut like the you know the most val- you know the most valuable thing to him is like you know the adulation the laughter of the audience um which he doesn't get uh you know from the P- the other prisoners he doesn't get it from like the audience when he was not in the camp but he gets it from the uncritical love of children who are completely uncritical and adoring and you know as the movie kind of goes on like um you know they they cling to him they like him because he makes them laugh and you know he's he's drawn to them as well and it sounds so cynical but there's something about that which kind of sticks in my craw a little bit i guess it's because of like uh the sent the sentimentalization of childhood and innocence well well i i i kind of get i get what you're saying because this movie, um, it really, um, the children are, they're an undifferentiated mass of Jewish children. 
There, there are no characters among the children. They are just there as an audience for Helmet, and that's probably that's one of the failings. Because I mean, it's like, oh no, he's taking these kids. He's he's got to make this choice about like at the end about what he's going to do with these kids, and it's like the kids aren't. We don't have any as an audience. They're just kids. Whatever. Um, uh, so Which sounds I don't like, know. and it sounds like awful to say because you're not, like you know it's a movie about like the 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 extermination of a people. Yeah, you know these these kids are in there for the crime of having been born into the Jewish culture. Yeah, you know, which is which is like awful. But again, like as you're saying, like they're kind of like this undifferentiated mass of like innocence and adulation yeah. for this character, which he just like completely like soaks up because you know it's something that he hasn't received from the adult world. It I guess it's the self-serving nature right, of right. that. And I don't know, like, I don't know if the script is kind of, like, sophisticated enough to put that across. Like, are like are we kind of supposed to hate hate this guy? Because that's kind of how I felt reading it. I, I feel like it was supposed to be a, a very <laughs> dark script, and he's supposed to be a very polarizing character. He's supposed to be, like, because, like, you know, there's one scene where, like, he's talking to the... Um, this this older prisoner who's basically like a, a pastor of some sort. Oh god, and that, that character is so like he's, underwritten. He's, yeah, he's basically the magical Negro of this script. Yeah, like, like when, so... whenever like whenever any okay, because like Jerry Lewis for most of the movie he's trying to before he realizes his calling and performing to children he's trying to get out of the camp by filling out like paperwork right. And that's his consuming passion is like I gotta get this paperwork done so I can you know get my case. Um, considered in front of like the tribunal or something, and they'll find out it's a mistake, and I can get out. So he's yeah, obsessed. and like yeah, and um, I don't know if you got the same impression as I did reading it, but it's kind of like you're kind of like yeah, good luck with that, bro. Like they're even yeah, gonna look yeah. at your fucking paperwork. Well, exactly. I mean, I think that's what they wanted it to be like. It's a useless, pointless thing, but they're just trying to show like this is his consuming obsession because he's got nothing else to cling to at this point. And he's and- incredibly naive. Yeah, exactly. Well, actually, it's very weird because the character does kind of vacillate between being naive and being cynical, depending on the needs of the scene. <laughs> um, but anyway, so he's he's filling this out, right? And this pastor character comes in and says, like, oh, Helmut, look, birds have come in and they're, rest- they're roosting here inside the barracks. Isn't that amazing? God has sent them – or something like this. Mm-hmm. Helmut, look at the birds. Look at the birds. And Helmut is like, God damn it, I've turned out this paperwork. And I guess as an audience, you're supposed to be like – Oh, Helmet, how you're so blind. How could you be so blind? The beauty is right there in front of you. But in reality, it's like, I mean, you'd be the same way if you were like thrown in a prison camp. You'd probably be clinging to straws too about like people. <laughs> Not like, I don't give a fuck about these birds. Well, you know, so basically it kind of makes, like, um, I find both of those characters completely insufferable. Yeah. Like, they're, they're really, like uh... Helmut as a character is like, you just want to slap. You're like, just come on, dude. Like, get over yourself. Yeah, you know, and then um, you know his what is what is what is the name of that character? The Keltner. 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 Yeah, yeah. Um, kind of the he's kind of the the voice of reason and a little bit of kind of like the de facto leader of the German prisoners in the barracks. He's a pastor and he's a really like enlightened and sensitive person, and you know he's just he just wants Helmut to like take a look at the richness of the world around him, and you just go like, God, shut the fuck up dude yeah we're in a fucking german prison camp <laughs> you know yeah. people are being put into boxcars and exterminated like i don't know <laughs> about you but like i'm not exactly feeling like sing- like like i want to sing zippity doo right now you know 
You know, um, speaking of that character, one of the bizarre things about this script that I didn't think about it till now is um, there. There's a scene where, like Helmut, for some reason, he's he they, the prisoners stage a soccer game to distract the guards so Helmut can entertain the kids. When this all goes awry, the the prisoners almost start rioting in a way, and um, one of the and uh, one of the guards pulls out his gun and shoots Franz who is a, a prisoner who has had, like, two lines in the whole movie. And when you think about it, it's like, Keltner should have been shot there because that would have just been like, everything's fucked now. Keltner's dead. But instead, it's like, here's some random character. Okay, whatever. Yeah. Um, and I almost feel like the script, like, was like, oh, we got to pull our punches in this weird, in this weird, depressing Holocaust movie. We can't make people feel too sad by killing the pastor. Um Oh, uh, there's another thing about the kids, though, I, I wanted to mention that I completely forgot to, because we're talking about how they're this, like, undifferentiated blob of innocence. Yes. Um, and the kids are really, when they talk, they are portrayed in the most um, doe-eyed, Walter Keane-esque, you know, way that you would portray, like, children. Um, they're just, like, they say things, like, there's a, there's a bit where, like, the, the one girl is like, oh, it's this other guy's, this Czech prisoner's little kid's birthday. And Helmut's like, how do you know? Do you speak Czech? And the girl's like, no. And he's like, well, how do you know that it's his birthday? Oh, he told me. And it's just like, she says it was with wide-eyed innocence or something. And it's like, of course, children, they just know. They have their they have their secret language that they all could have, It's like, what the fuck is this shit? It's like, they're not like, oh, God. They're just like, they're, it's really like, presented in kind of a kind of a gag it's very gag induced yeah. it's the way the children are you know it sounds awful to say because again like these children are caught up in this um horror which is almost too massive to com to comprehend um and yeah you know they 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 are innocents but they're written in a way that is just so cloying yeah yeah um it's it's yeah it's very you know and really Everything about the movie is very jarring um, because, you know, you have these scenes with the kids that are all just like, you know, just complete like goopy sentimentality, like, oh, children, the innocence of youth. And, oh, it's just and then you have these scenes with like Keltner, which are also like, oh, oh. and then you have these scenes where um, wacky shenanigans are going on. Um, yeah, which um, just completely throws off the tone like I yeah. was um, and. I really want to know how much of this footage exists. Yeah, I want to see the shoelace scene. Oh, God. I don't want to see him piss ice. That's going to be hilarious. <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah. uh, like, because it it wasn't in the German documentary. Yeah. Um, Was it even shot? That's a good question, yeah. Like, um, it must have been, like, surely it was in the work print. I mean, um, if... But you know, I, I have no way of confirming that yeah. without asking Harry Shearer. Like, somebody, if anybody knows Harry Shearer, can you please ask him, did you see the pissing ice scene yeah. in Day the Clown Cried? Well, also, here's a, here's a possibility, because we know um, that Jerry Lewis, as, <laughs> as this movie was in production, it seems like he started having misgivings. Uh, I have to point out that at the time, uh, Jerry Lewis was in the grips of a raging Percodan addiction, uh, was sleeping about three hours a night for the space of a uh, hundred hundred days or so, which is probably like the span of production. Was sinking all his own money into it. 
maybe the guy wasn't thinking very clearly during production. That's, yeah. <laughs> okay, so giving giving Jerry Lewis the benefit of the doubt that maybe he wasn't, or possibly, possibly that he was he was un, under all those pressures. It actually like cleared his mind so he could see clearly for the first time, and he finally like saw you know he saw all the knots. You know, all he saw all the the ways, intersections, and the ins and outs, and how everything worked and fit together, and realized, oh God, I've made a terrible mistake. Um, but either way, like we know that he started having some sort of misgivings. He started. We don't know the rate at which it happened or when exactly, but it's possible that as he was shooting this, he was realizing, shit, this comedy is a bad idea, and that those scenes were like not shot. Um, if he was doing this on the fly, he might've been, we don't know. Yeah. Um, but I feel know. like at the same time, because, um, again, Jerry Lewis is and was a comedy star full stop. Um, and he took the effort to insert these scenes into the screenplay, probably because he felt like it was playing to his strengths hmm. and then to like not shoot them. You yeah. Know, would yeah, be that's like, that's pretty, that's pretty major. But again, like, uh, you know, I'd love to know if he talked about this, in the interview in Der Clown, yeah. uh, Eric Friedler, email me. <laughs> for God's sake, I need to know. <laughs> but um, yeah. you know, it just it it it, kind of, it boggles the mind a little bit, you know, because again, like on the page, just on the page alone, these scenes are so ill conceived. Right. It, um, it, I mean, like they would be fine, and uh, you know, maybe like they would have been okay in Hogan's Heroes. Yeah, which you is know. a hilarious comedy. Exactly. Hollywood oh, yeah. Hills is great. But, um, um, like... Well, the thing is, even in the script, you can see that the script has to make all sorts of contortions to fit them in, because throughout the, the majority of the script, you know, the, the concentration, the, the, or the, the camp guards have been, like, sadists and bullies who are, like, going... They're beating people up. They're, like, screaming constantly. They're, like threatening to murder people they murder people um and then in this one scene one of the guards is like you know what would be really funny i'm gonna open all the windows so that when jerry lewis is asleep he's gonna it's gonna get really cold in there and it's like suddenly you're playing like wacky like dorm room style pranks um what, what's up with that um next he short sheeted his bunk bed oh you know i i think though um in speaking of wacky holocaust comedies you really can't avoid comparing this with Life is Beautiful. The single other entry into the wacky Holocaust comedy genre. Well, first of all, I think it's interesting that, um, you know, Jerry Lewis um, made this, you know, uh, ostensibly wanted to make this movie because he, he was like, okay, we're going to make a wacky Holocaust comedy. Halfway through, he realizes, oh shit, this is a bad idea. It's going to be a terrible um, you know, embarrassment or an insult or whatever. I'm, and, and he pulls it, he quashes it for like 50 years. We all make fun of him for that. Uh, Roberto Benigni's like, I'm going to make a wacky Holocaust comedy. He goes through with it. He puts it out there. Everyone like is like, this is great. A million Oscars. So um, apparently Jerry Lewis misread people's um, taste. And maybe if he'd actually put it out there, people would be like shitting their pants on how great the day the clown cried is. Like, um, because I'm, I'm also, I have seen Life is Beautiful, and I also, I'm kind of boggled by the response to that that movie. 
Life is Beautiful is um, well. The thing is, like, it came out at a time when people were like, well, no, I shouldn't say it came out at a time. I, I, this is probably universal. Is like people were like, oh, hey, it's about the Holocaust. That means it's deep and meaningful. Yeah. We should. We should. It's like an emperor's has no clothes type thing where everyone's like, that's right. I don't want to be the first one to stop applauding, you know, because <laughs> um, life is beautiful is not a particularly good movie. I, I would venture to say it's kind of shitty. Um, it's got like it's got one good scene in the whole movie. What was what was the good scene? Well, the good scene um, is there's a scene where it's, it's established early on where Roberto Benini, uh, wacky funster that he is. He's he's I guess he's what he's a concierge in an Italian hotel or something I forget what he is and um, there's this doctor like there's this German doctor that he's friends with and they always like basically ask each other riddles as like kind of a you know um, a wacky game they do and later when he's in the camp he sees that doctor appear like you know in his Nazi uniform and he realizes oh shit this doctor is like a big wig Nazi guy I'm friends with him he can get me out of this. And the doctor kind of talks and says, like, oh, uh, I, Roberto Benini, I remember you. Well, tonight there's a big dinner. At, all the Nazis are going to hang out and have dinner together. And I want I want to talk to you there. And Roberto Benini's like, oh, I'm out of here. I'm finally. This is my way out. And at that dinner, the, the doctor comes up to him and basically says, hey, Roberto Benini, I actually just want to ask you this riddle that I don't know the answer to. And I want – and you're really good at riddles, so I need you to answer it for me. And – I really thought this was a great scene because, A, it kind of shows the banality of evil, mm -hmm. which, you know, the rest of the movie doesn't really communicate very well. And also, um, Roberto Benigni, his, his response is he really just, you know, he, he basically just goes and he's a waiter at this party. And he just basically goes, turns away from the doctor, just keeps doing the waiter waiting, you know, job. And it's just such a there there's like a genuine emotion in this scene because, you know, it's he's like this. He's elated that he's going to get out and just this complete crushing realization that is now completely hopeless. And it, it's the one scene, I think, that almost elevates the entire film because the rest of the movie, I'm just like, oh, it's funny because the kid is in a concentration camp, but he doesn't realize it. He's going to grow up to be the world's weirdest Holocaust denier. <laughs> Yeah, um, like they they didn't put people in ovens. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, it was a fun game, but yeah, um, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's weird because I don't think Roberto Benigni was is Jewish, so it's kind of odd that. Well, it's kind of interesting that you know, Jerry Lewis, who you know is Jewish and very openly Jewish, um, would would think better of this movie and think maybe he's not the guy to tell the story. Well, yeah, Roberto Benigni's like, like fuck it, I'm going right ahead with it. <laughs> well, yeah, because uh, maybe like as a. As a, as a Jewish man, like, that was why, like you said, like, that's why Jerry Lewis kind of thought better of He's like, wait a minute, like, I might be doing my people a tremendous disservice by putting this into the world. Yeah. So, <laughs> credit, credit where it's due. But that's, that's, that's a very interesting point about life is beautiful. But it's interesting that, um, and like, I, I kind of find the per those two performers analogous to each other, uh, Jerry Lewis and Roberto Benigni, because they're both very outsized, um, big comedy yeah. performers to the point where they're all they become almost intolerable like i remember yeah. when kind of benini had that cultural moment when that movie came out and i remember seeing him in the oscar at the oscars and yeah you know, when he got called on stage he was like climbing on people in the audience and 
I just remember looking at his wife, who's actually uh, an actress who's been in many of his movies, and just thinking how just worn and tired she looked. Yeah. Like, well, like Jesus H. Christ, like, he never stops. Please help me. I also like, though, when, when he got, like, a second Oscar, I think, and he was, like, he was almost confused, like, oh, shit, I gotta climb over people again, you know? And, and I, I shot it. my wad. I don't know what to do now. Yeah, and it's kind of like he's doing it again, and it's weird because it's almost like, oh, I, I, it kind of lays bare how calculated it really was, you know? <laughs> because when he does it once, it's like, oh, it's a spontaneous outpouring of emotion. He's overcome with, like, you know, but and when he does it a second time, you're like, oh, okay. Um, but yeah, uh, but, I think- but yeah, they are very similar performers, as you can tell by the fact that Roberto Vanini, he had all that cachet after Life is Beautiful, and he decided to make Pinocchio. <laughs> which is which is a, a movie even worse than Life is Beautiful. Yeah, but that would be uh, we we could do a great double feature for the podcast. It could be uh, Benini's Pinocchio and Jerry Lewis's Hardly Working. It'd be <laughs> I, like I will... the double feature of The Damned. We'll both we will both eat a gun at the very end of the episode. <laughs> Roberto Benini's Pinocchio, it's like watching Cool World, where it's just literally nonstop just garbage being flung at the screen until you just want to die. Um, but there is a great scene where um, <coughs> Lampwick, sorry, the character, the Lampwick, I think is the name of the character, you know, the, the kid that Pinocchio hangs out with. The, the one know. who uh, cons him onto the, the island. That's right. The one who eventually turns into a donkey and is worked to death yeah. and, and skinned, which they actually leave in in the Bruno to Benini version. Jesus Christ! They don't cut any of that shit out. Um, but there's a scene where, for some reason, they're like, "Yeah, they, like the the Disney version. That's for pussies, man." Yeah. <laughs> oh no, they they don't they pull out all the stops on this one. Um, but what's great is so so he's played by Italian actor Kim Rossi Stewart, which is the reason that your wife made you watch this. Yes, pile. exactly. Uh, he's a he's an Italian actor of of I guess medium renown. He's kind of a pretty boy, you know. He's, he's decent enough as far as i can tell um i don't speak italian so i don't know but in this but he's basically like i don't know he's like 30 years old right playing a a 12 year old boy wearing like a weird lederhosen and the little short shorts and all that that you know weird 19th century european children would and uh, roberto benini who is like a 40 year old man dressed in a harlequin clown outfit they they for some reason like they they um they're they're going off on this 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 um adventure onto fantasy island or whatever and uh lampwick is all like hey guess what i have i've got these big old luscious lollipop things that are these long they're almost like cattails they're shaped yeah. kind of like cattails or um and what they, you're saying is that they're extremely phallic they are and they're like oh these are so great and they have this long extended scene where the two of them sit next to each other licking the same cattail from opposite sides Ugh. just like in this like it's like this weird like pseudo blowjob thing which you know i mean i'm sure like my wife was like oh this is interesting yeah yeah i'm, I'm the, the simple yeah and i was kind of like you know what um i i mean i don't I'm not particularly into seeing two guys lick a dick. That that I mean, I'm not. Some people are. That's fine. Um, what really killed it for me is they're like two 
fucking full-grown adult men dressed as little children licking a dick. That's, that's kind of, I don't know. I mean, that's a little out there for me. I would rather watch Newt Gingrich eat a foot-long hot dog loaded with mustard and relish than watch Roberto Benigni lick a lollipop at length. <laughs> The point is, is that uh, in the in the um, the shallow pool that is uh, um, Holocaust movies leavened with humor, <laughs> we've got we've got Day the Clown Cried, we've got Life is Beautiful. Um, does Robin Williams tell any jokes in Jacob the Liar? Yeah, I don't know. I've never, I've never that's seen good that. I remember when it came out. Hmm. I don't know. Was um. I I. I, I... You know what? What was Jacob? What was the plot of Jacob the Liar? Was he like like doing radio broadcasts from inside the? Oh, it's like was it basically like Good Morning Vietnam, but in Auschwitz? <laughs> Who knows? I, I I haven't seen it. Uh, I was not, no one saw it. I don't. I don't think I, anyone. I'm saw not it. a. F- I wasn't a fan of uh, Robin Williams' uh, sad clown persona. Yeah, uh, interesting. Is that, is that a thing that comedians do? That like, there's a point where it's like, oh, um. You know, being funny is great, and I really love making people laugh, but I think it's time that I become serious. Yeah. And that I make well, people laugh about serious topics. Like, that well, way think, lies like, madness. Yeah. yeah, well, I think, like, every every comedy actor wants to feel like... I mean, every actor and wants to feel like they've actually done something important that's made a difference to people. And I think if you're a co- comedian or a comedy actor... You know, it's very easy to to look at a life in comedy and think that that doesn't do that. Even though, when you think about it, comedy means a lot to people. And, yeah, yeah, it's very important, and I think it it manages to touch people in in many ways. Um, but and basically, this was something you know, that uh, Jerry Lewis had actually said himself. He'd actually talked about the spoken about the importance of comedy in the face of horror. Yeah, you know, which I, yeah. again I think is part you know part of the reason why he wanted to do this movie. But um, and to be fair. Um, you know, Robin Williams did effectively transition into a, he 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 did do some good serious roles. Yeah, you know, like maybe some of his, you know, some of his project choices weren't the best, but you know, like he did stuff like a one hour photo, and mm. you know, like just to grab an example from later in his career where he proved he he could be a serious actor. He had the chops, yeah. you know. Yeah, but. Um... And, you know, like, also, uh, you know, Jerry Lewis did uh, um, Martin Scorsese's King of Comedy. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. you know, there is that. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, you know, a big part of it. As as actors age, they want to feel like they've done some. There's the, there's the, the phase where you enter your career where in, in your middle of your career you want to actually have, you know, something, say something of import. And then at the end of career, there's one where you're like, I want to make something my, my grandkids can watch. And that's when suddenly everything turns to just shit. In all honesty, it's not a project that was necessarily doomed from the start. I think it probably is possible if you've got the finesse to actually make a wacky Holocaust comedy that is not, you know, a complete train wreck. Um, I don't know that this was that project or would have been if it was completed, but... Yeah, looking at the, again, like, watching the footage... You kind of believe in the project a little more, but then if you go and you you can read the script online, just Google Day the Clown Cries script. It's easily available, you know, if you uh, have train wreck syndrome. If you read the script, 
the goodwill that you felt watching the footage kind of dissolves. Yeah. <laughs> because I believe the movie is just so wildly uneven in tone that I, I, you understand why Harry Shearer said what he did about it. It's, um, that, 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 that from the script, that seems pretty fair, honestly. I can't get a definitive answer on what form the film exists in at this time. Uh, again, we will keep you informed if we find out more. Hopefully we will yeah. find out more because I am so curious to know what about the videotape and the Louis Vuitton briefcase? Like, what about the odds and ends of the Library of Congress? I'm curious. 